3: From KQVD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Too few people are willing or able to join the U.S. military, according to the Department of Defense, and 2023 was an especially tough year. Officials cite an economy with more job opportunities drawing away young people, Gen Z's low trust in traditional government institutions, and a declining pool of candidates able to meet the physical or medical requirements of service. This hour, we take a closer look at the lengths recruiters are going to, to fill their ranks, and hear from you. Did you serve in the military, or would you consider serving? Why or why not? Forum is next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. Army is reusing a tried-and-true slogan from the 80s in hopes of boosting its ranks. Be all you can can be. Be be. Be all you can be. Be all you can be. Be all you can be. Be
1: all you can be.
3: The Army, Navy, Air Force, and other military branches collectively missed their recruitment goals last year by some 40,000, according to a Department of Defense official at a hearing before a House Armed Services subcommittee last fall, calling it one of the agency's greatest challenges since the force became all-volunteer in 1973. Joining me first to talk about what's driving the recruiting difficulties and why it matters that the U.S. military is struggling to fill its ranks is Beth Ash, Senior Economist at the RAND Corporation. Beth, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So these days of recruitment have been described as dark days and so on. We know that the military has struggled to recruit in the past, but how would you characterize how things are going today?
4: So um, the Army missed its mission in 2022 by a really large amount. And then 2023, as you mentioned, uh, it it was very difficult for all the services. And the amount by which they're missing is is something we haven't seen in quite some time. That said, there have been periods of struggle. Um, the Around 2004, 2005 was a very challenging period. The late 90s was a ch- challenging period. The early eight, you know, late 70s or 80s. So it's not like we haven't seen this before, but, you know, every time it comes up, it, it is uh, a lot of work has to go into to fix.
3: Yeah, what do you think, is driving this challenging period in recruitment?
4: So the truth is, is that the data and the analysis that's required, you know, rigorous analysis to answer that question really hasn't been done. Uh, and so what we can do is look at what we know from past work, what affects recruiting and try to surmer- surmise from that. The problem is, is there are other factors that have been emerging that we don't really know what the effect is. So the answer is, is we really don't know. But some of those factors were some that you mentioned, um, a very strong civilian economy. Research shows that a a strong economy hurts recruiting. Um, The uh, share of young people who are eligible to enlist uh, is, uh, is relatively low. That's been true for quite some time, but COVID might have exacerbated that. Um, resource management the services devote considerable resources to recruiting and question is is has it ha, they haven't really provided enough at you mentioned the be-all you can be advertising advertising is shown to be very effective as our recruiters uh, bonuses um and so we would surmise that all of those factors are important how the services do Outreach um, are important. But there could be other factors that have been emerging that we don't yet know, uh, such as declining trust in the military, which you mentioned, and concerns about, um, about you know, the eligibility criterion and whether it contained mm. those eligibility criteria are still relevant, such as marijuana, yeah. for example.
3: Right. So there are a lot of theories. Well, let's take. Some One at a time. You mentioned first that a stronger economy affects recruiting. Why? Is it just that for people who are interested in some kind of financial security, they're seeing lots of opportunities without, say, the difficulties or rigors of military life to be able to accomplish them?
4: Yeah, I mean, that, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, it is a volunteer force, which doesn't mean that people are volunteers. It just means that they're not drafted. And so the services and the military has to set compensation benefits and the conditions of service to attract people to join when they have good opportunities in the civilian market. You know, military pay is higher on average than civilian pay, in large part to compensate for the arduous and, uh, nature of, of military service and the conditions of service. Um, And so there is very much, you know, trying to set the pay and benefits to attract that force, given what they can earn in the civilian world.
3: And you talked about eligibility requirements. Is there a declining pool of people who are eligible? And if that's the case, why? Are the standards too high?
4: So it's important that so right now about a quarter of young people would be eligible to enlist without a waiver. That figure is from 2020. The previous number that was measured was around 2013, and it was around 20, if I recall, something about 29%. So it has been declining. But even 29% back in 2013 was considered low. In 2004, it was about 30%. So it's been low for quite some time. Many of the things have to do with just very stringent requirements having to do with everything from physical um what they call moral which is you know having a run-in with the law you know citizenship age dependence aptitude education there's just a whole series of eligibility and there are many aspects of uh, many trends which point in the wrong direction so for example obesity um is a big issue no pun intended with uh qualification because the military has height weight standards um, which can be waived, but nonetheless um, require you know, people to be physically fit.
3: Yeah. And it sounds like you can't have any kind of criminal record or can you have misdemeanors on your record?
4: You can. In fact, you can even have a felony, um, and but it requires a waiver. So you I can, see. there are very, each service has its own specific uh, criteria, but yeah, you can, but sometimes it has to be waived.
3: So you mentioned declining trust in the military, and I wanted to explore what some of those facets might be as well. I mean, certainly we've seen cited the fact that uh, the US has been engaged in decades of essentially sort of grinding wars, wars that haven't seemed to really have great ends or a sense of real victory. We, of course, recently had that chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Are those contributing factors?
4: So just a little background. Trust has declined, but it declined from a relatively high level. So if you will, it's, about, it's back to where we were about 2000. Yeah. And it's actually part of a decline in trust in institutions in America in general, and the okay. military relative to other institutions is pretty high. So, but I'm sorry to answer your question. Um, Yeah, that's still trying to be sorted out. There are some uh, indications that the withdrawal from Afghanistan, what people consider the risks of service, especially related to depression, PTSD, uh, traumatic brain injury, suicide, those sorts of sexual assault um, have played a role.
3: Right. We're talking with Beth Beth Ash, a senior economist at RAND. And I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation why do you think the U.S. military has struggled to fill its ranks? Did you serve? What motivated you to sign up? Did you consider signing up but decide against it? Why? Or would you not? And, and why not? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or on Twitter or X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Would you consider it? Would you want your child to do it. Again, that number 866 733 You mentioned, yes, the handling of sexual assaults or sexual harassment in the military. There were a lot of criticisms around that. The other thing, of course, that has happened in the last several years have been a lot of anti-trans policies and messaging and, and concerns about extremist views in the military. How much has... Recruitment been affected by by those factors, or even sort of the culture wars, I guess, for lack of a better description. So
4: the answer is is we don't know yet. We just don't have the data analysis to um, look at that yet, and controlling for other factors that are going on, such as what's going on with recruit uh, with uh, recruiting resources and the economy. So there's been a lot of talk, certainly in social media. Uh, politicians, leaders talking about those sorts of issues, extremism, uh, COVID vaccination, um, uh, you know, so-called "what woke DEI efforts, but we don't have the evidence yet. It it doesn't mean there isn't evidence, it's just the analysis hasn't been really done in a rigorous way to discern it.
3: And are there plans to, or are you concerned about that, Beth, that maybe the military isn't investing its resources and really understanding the drivers?
4: Well, I mean, it is, it just, you know, takes time to, um, for data, you know, we have to have a before and after period, it takes time to do the analysis. So those kinds of studies are ongoing or happening now. We just don't have the results yet.
3: Yeah. I'm wondering about people joining the military. Young people are often inspired by having a parent or a grandparent or a respected mentor serve, right?
4: So, yeah, we do know that people are more likely to have an interest if they are um, based on what their influencers, teachers, uh, coaches, grandparents, um, and the like. Uh, And and certainly if they've served, that uh, is an important influence.
3: Are you worried about maybe a declining pool then having the effect of, you know, having fewer people who have a parent or a family member or trusted friend who has served contributing to the decline?
4: Yeah. I mean, the military has declined in size over time. And so the veterans pool, if you will, has declined. And so there are fewer people out there with familiarity with the military. But look, here's the thing. Most people who join the military are people who were not positively propensed to initially. In other words, they weren't that group. And so what happens is the services have to convince those people to join. That's why recruiting is so difficult. And so, while it's true, those people are more inclined and they're an important pool, um, a lot of the effort has to go into what we'll call the non-propensed group, the people who don't necessarily want to at first blush.
3: I see. So, it's actually a lot of conversions. And it sounds like you see that potentially as a source of hope. Absolutely. Again,
4: um, what we know is we see we get the surveys of people and when they're asked, how likely is it you're going to join the military? And a very small group says, I'm definitely or highly likely to join the military. And when we actually merge those data on the surveys with actual enlistment data, it turns out most people who enlisted were not in that positively propensed group.
3: We're talking with Beth Ash, senior economist at the Rand Corporation. We're talking about how, across nearly all branches of the US military, enlistment has been in decline. We're looking at what's driving it, and we'll find out more about how the military is handling it after the break. And you, our listeners, of course, are invited to join with your experiences in the military or experiences considering or deciding against, signing up, and your thoughts on why the U.S. military has struggled to fill its ranks. The email address, forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED forum. Our phone number is 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
1: This is Forum. i Mina Kim. We're talking this
3: hour about the U.S. military's struggle to fill its ranks with Beth Ash of the Rand Corporation and with you, our listeners. You can call us at 866 733 6786 or post on our social channels or post online by email, forum at kqed.org. And we've got calls coming in. Let me go to Annalisa in Belmont. Hi, Annalise or Annalisa.
1: Yes, Annalise, thank you. So my daughter, I accompanied her to the recruiter's office. I myself am a veteran, and I thought the Army would be really a good idea for her. Um, She's not ready for college. And they basically said because she has ADHD and takes medication that she was ineligible. And then we contacted the Air Force recruiter, and they said that she would be eligible if she's off her meds for three years. The army had hmm. one year, and it just is really challenging. So an otherwise very good candidate um, has been disqualified. So that would be anybody on, on meds. And their their rationale is that if you're in the trenches and there's warfare, you can't get your prescriptions. Oh, well, Annalise, Thank thanks.
3: You. Yeah, thanks so much for calling. I appreciate that you're a vet and can speak to the experience that you'd like to have for your daughter. But I'm curious, Beth, if you could help us understand a little bit more about the the medical or the medication, essentially, requirements uh, that the armed services has?
4: Yeah, so there's definitely been a rise in ADHD diagnoses over time. And so that certainly caught the attention of Department of Defense and their criteria. So there's a lot of attention on this. and turns out there's a pilot they are doing to try to look at that particular um criteria to see if there's ways to loosen it up. So there's a lot of attention on it. It's a shame that that happened with your daughter, but they are trying to see what they can do on that one. We actually did an analysis where we tracked people who did come in on an ADHD waiver because they were off their meds. And we found that their performance was in general uh, quite good, although they were more likely to have health issues and behavioral health issues uh, during their first enlistment term.
3: Well, the sister on Discord writes, why have a job where you can get killed? Movies like Top Gun are not enough to get people to think a military career is a good option. It sounds like movies like Top Gun have been helpful, but why have a job where you can get killed? What would be maybe a recruiter's response to that, Beth?
4: Well, you know, you can get killed driving down the freeway, right? So, you know, a lot of jobs are are risky. And um, people take them because in the case of the military, this is service to your country and uh, an opportunity to do something uh, potentially very meaningful. It is, uh, you know, it is arduous. It is dangerous in some cases. Not every job is on the front line tip of the spear. And it's important to recognize that. And... um, so, so you know people do get that satisfaction further. you know there's the just getting skills, experience, and opportunity to participate something larger than than themselves, the opportunity to travel so people join for a lot of reasons, notwithstanding the danger
3: Beth, what is the impact of? A nation essentially struggling to recruit enough members of its military, what do you see as the broader impacts of this
4: so ultimately the the impact is on the readiness of our military to uh, do its mission, which is to carry out the national strategy as articulated by the president so um, what happens when you have shortfalls is that it's still the case that the high priority units will get, you know, people. So if a unit's deploying, they will get the people they need. But other things will not get done, or they'll be postponed. Like important maintenance will get postponed or not done, and ultimately the capability and for what we call force structure, certain units will be stand stood down, and so we won't have the force that um the president thinks we need to carry out the national defense strategy
3: we heard about repeat deployments extending deployments is that also a consequence
4: um it could be right now there are deployments there's always deployments we have certainly quite a few members serving overseas but you know relative to the highs of iraq and afghanistan it isn't anywhere near that uh level um, and so because we're not sustaining those huge forces overseas as we were in recent years, um, it, it's not quite that stress level. But the general point is valid, which is if there's fewer people, the people who are deployed, who are out on ships, who are overseas, are going to be there longer.
3: Do you think people who have broader concerns about, say, our nation's security, do you think those are well-founded in light of a of a military that isn't meeting its It's recruitment numbers by tens of thousands that 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 is a real, a real concern, a real issue, a real consequence of this.
4: It's a it's a real long term concern. The short run, there are enough people to fill the high priority. You know, we have, you know, people who are now out, you know, at the Red Sea and, you know, who are supporting operations related to um, what we're doing with Ukraine. You know, those 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 are fully manned, those are operational, those that that's not what's happening. And so there should be concern. But in the long term, you know, if we can't get certain units, you know, fully, you know, peopled and you know, we're not doing the maintenance we need and people are getting burnt out because they're doing long shifts, that becomes a long term concern.
3: Let me go to caller Lisa in San Francisco. Lisa, you're on.
5: Yeah, hi. Um, I guess my whole thing is that you know, right now with social media, the population, we're, we're much more smarter and more aware of what's going on in the world. So while, you know, we all want to serve our country, we want to make sure we're safe, I think it's becoming harder and harder to trust some of the decisions that are made. Um, you know, example of Afghanistan, how We were there in war for 20 years. And at the end, there was, you know, the purpose, of course, we kept our country safe. But at the same time, was there real reason to be there Mm -hmm. for so long? And I think becoming aware of what's going on in the world through social media and through real stories, that's that's making it really harder and harder.
3: Well, Lisa, thanks for sharing your perspective. Let me go to Noah next in Oakland. Noah, you're on.
2: Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question, comment is, um, there have been multiple statements from GOP lawmakers as well as uh, academic researchers who look into this subject on factors impacting military recruitment that things like college loan forgiveness and universal health care would hurt military recruiting because many people joined in order to get access to those things. Which I think is an incredibly sad state of affairs that we're thinking about keeping important social services and quality of life away from American citizens to push them into the military. And I will say that after decades of misadventures, six million dead civilians in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, a million dead Iraqis in Afghanistan, an abject failure of the Taliban taking over, who used to be the Mujahideen, who mm. are military funded and supported. Are you really surprised mm. that you have lost the respect of the American people?
3: That no, is comment. I- Thanks. I can hear your passion. Is he right that there are, are, you know, essentially real deliberate efforts to try to keep people's financial capacities down because it's good for military recruitment, Beth?
4: That that's not my observation. I I think um, I you know I I don't I don't know what the caller had heard, but. Um, my, my experience with uh, military leadership is just that they've made the observation that historically the military has had, if you will, an advantage relative to the civilian world by offering um, loan repayment, uh, uh, the GI Bill, various educational benefits, as well as free health care to active duty members and their families. And that as those types of benefits are expanded in the civilian world, relative advantages is, is disappearing i haven't heard anyone argue that therefore we shouldn't have them in the civilian world um i'm it, it's just noticing that something that has been an incentive to join is less of an incentive and so now the military has to think about well what else should it be offering um to to sustain the incentive
3: in terms of social services or health care, there was, of course, a lot of coverage about how House Republicans tried to remove uh, as part of passing the Department of Defense bill things like coverage for abortion travel or gender affirming medical care and so on. So certainly certain types of services have been put up as as being potentially on the chopping block in the past, though so I think in this final bill, a lot of that did not end up happening, but of course, did get a lot of attention. Um, So one of the things that I've been very curious about, though, is the fact that the Marines apparently have not struggled at all. In fact, frequently, they have more people than um, they need to, to fill their ranks. Why are the Marines doing well?
4: So I, I wouldn't say that it's been a cakewalk. They certainly have worked quite hard at what they've done and they have some signs of struggle, but overall you're exactly right. They've been very successful and have had sustained success for uh, for a while. Um, the Marines first of all are a lot smaller than the other services. So you know, if the Marines had to do what the army has to do, maybe the Marines wouldn't be so successful. So it's important to keep that in mind. Um, it's also the case the Marines are, if you will, a niche service. They portray a very specific brand, if you will, or image about who they are and their warfighting focus. And that really appeals um, to uh, a, a group and they are successful with that Um and so uh, they have done very well. I think there's other things in terms of things like re- because they are smaller, they are more nimble. They've uh, re- And their resource management is somewhat different than the Army's. One in particular is the Marine Corps um, being a recruiter is considered a really desirable job because it's career enhancing. There's a lot of respect in the service for that. That truly has not been the case in the Army. The Army's trying to turn that around, so but there's just a very different view about what about the role of the recruiter and recruiting in the Marine Corps versus the Army
3: huh, that's so interesting. Well, um Elliot on Discord writes, I have seen that the u s Army has formed its own esports team, sponsors and advertisers heavily at gaming events and streams regularly on Twitch. I hate all of it but they are there. So can you talk about some of the ways that they're trying to retool their recruitment strategies? Is getting into gaming one way of trying to draw young people in? So
4: first of all, just what the research shows is that marketing and advertising is extremely effective for the military in terms of generating leads and subsequent enlistment. So it's a very effective and frankly, cost-effective approach. And so they need to come up with an effective marketing and advertising strategy, especially today with social media and things are very segmented and they are looking for places to market and advertise where their target market is. And our target market is gaming um, and in these various forms that you've mentioned. And so, yes, that that's where they are. Hmm.
3: Well, let me go to Sue in Castro Valley. Sue, you're on.
4: Uh, Hi. Um, I'm uh, calling in because I think I would actively discourage a young person from joining the military. They seem to be very careless in terms of what chemicals they expose their members to. and, And I'm talking about things like Agent Orange And the burn pits in the Middle East. And then afterward, it takes a long time for them to acknowledge uh, what happened and to take care of those people
3: who were affected. Mm. I see that as a big betrayal. Mm. Um, Can you comment on that? Sue, thanks for the question. Beth, can you?
1: Um,
4: a little bit. Uh, I I I, you know, my my background is more about the just the disability compensation system in general. with Respect to, you know, Agent Orange, I mean, as you say, there were a lot of concern now with the burn pits. And um that did lead to uh uh changes in the system, especially with the disability compensation to allow people to take disability compensation for that. But, you know, it, it does tend to be a reactive system, and it's a reactive system that can be very slow and I'm sure very frustrating for those people who are impacted by it.
3: We're talking with Beth Ash, a senior economist at RAND, about the decline in the U.S. military and hearing from you, our listeners, about why you think the U.S. military struggles to fill its ranks, whether or not you've served and what motivated you to sign up or did you consider but decide against it? Why did you do that? We're also talking about our recruitment standards and sort of strategies. So what do you think about those standards? Should those change? What do you think about the recruitment strategies? We heard one listener talking about how they hate seeing advertisements on esports, for example. Or if you have thoughts about how they could do a better job, the email address is forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are on X, Instagram, digital community on Discord. We're at Forum. You can always call us, 866-733-6786. I want to bring Roberto Camacho into the conversation. Roberto is a freelance reporter who focuses on race, social justice, and equity, and has reported on the Mill- <laughs> Prism. Roberto, thanks so much for being with us.
6: Thank you, Mina, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on.
3: So you have focused your reporting here in California and you've talked with organizations that are worried that sometimes the recruitment efforts go too far. What are some of the concerns that they have shared with you?
6: Absolutely. So many of the concerns with lots of the counter recruitment organizations that I've spoken with is that as the military is unable to increasingly meet its quota demands that they are increasingly leaning into populations from rural and Low income communities, uh, specifically um, communities of color and uh, Latino um, students, people mm. who are immigrant families and um, people whose, fam- whose family members and parents are not uh, native English speakers as well. And people who are just not savvy to the risks of potential risks of a listener.
3: Do you think saying that they're not savvy? Are you are you essentially saying that maybe they're taking advantage of that lack of savviness in their recruitment efforts?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So, what we've seen is that with organizations I talked to, such as Project Yano, and which is uh, the uh, Project on Youth and Non Military Opportunities, and, Truth and recruitment, what they have one of their big concerns. Is that many a lot of times when recruiters are going and talking to students it's not just the students they're talking to it is also the parents huh. and parents who speak little English can be disarmed by recruiters persistence and their charm while being sold a very rosy picture of how military service could you know benefit their children and many recruiters will gloss over even omit the risks that can potentially come with the listment. Which mislead both, you know, potential recruits and their families.
3: One detail you highlighted for folks who are seeking American citizenship or who might be undocumented students is that they they say that their joining will help them in that process?
6: The promise of potential citizenship is a tactic that military recruiters do dangle to potential recruits, but you have to be a you have to be a citizen or a legal resident. To join, to join the military, number one, you know, and the U.S. Um, government does not grant citizenship to uh, legal residents or do- undocumented people. Uh, for that matter, that's handled by an entirely different government agency. And as a legal resident uh, joining the military, the only advantage that you can have by enlisting is having, you know, your application for citizenship sped up, but that is by no means guaranteed.
3: We're talking about military recruitment with Roberto Camacho, who focuses on race, social justice and equity as a freelance reporter. We're also talking with Beth Ash, a senior economist at the RAND Corporation. And we're talking with you, our listeners, hearing your experiences in the military, your questions about military recruitment, your thoughts on why the U.S. military struggles to fill its ranks. Any changes you might suggest, 866 733 the number, email address, forum, at kqed.org, our social channels, at kqbd Forum. Stay with us. I'm Ina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Across nearly all branches of the U.S. military, enlistment has been in decline, and we're looking at what that means for a country to struggle to staff. It's all volunteer military. It's been all volunteer since 1973. And the lengths recruiters are going to, to fill its ranks in California and nationwide. And we're hearing from you, our listeners. Let me go to Marcus in San Francisco. Hi, Marcus, you're on.
7: Hello, ladies. So, my perspective is a little bit different. I actually just uh got a general discharge from the Army. i wasn't able to complete because I got injured but i'm a forty year old male i'm an immigrant um with a family. I have two daughters and a wife and I tell you the reason i'm not reenlisting is because six months without my family is really difficult, hmm. and a lot of the reason a lot of uh, a lot of People don't enlist is because of that time. Waking up at four in the morning and going to bed at nine for six months is a long time, especially with a family at home. And, you know, speaking for a lot of a lot of the people that that I met in boot camp, everybody talked about why don't we get a break in between why don't we go for two months go home for a week or two and then come back and even if the boot camp was longer at least it's only two months at a time right so and i'm a proud american i wear the american flag like i said i'm a naturalized citizen i wasn't born here there's so much pride but it's tough especially at my age with a family and even the younger people with a family right
3: well, Marcus, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and and I'm curious, Beth, yeah, in terms of has there been talk about maybe reducing the length of of boot camp, for example, or just making it a little bit more a little bit more family friendly, especially if uh the people that they're trying to recruit have families
4: yeah the you know the impact of service on the family is definitely a a a big concern among people who worry about military personnel. And how to ease the the burden on uh, spouses and families due to the absence of the member Um, You know, what the research shows is actually, you know, to the the callers, you know, you know, patriotism is actually members do want to be deployed. They want to do the thing they got trained to do. And we find that reenlistment increases with length of deployment, but up to a point. And then after that, beyond that point, there's a negative effect. You know, it's too much. It's too much on the family. It's too much on the member. There's burnout. And so uh, it has to be managed very carefully. There's a lot of focus on providing support to the families, but it's, it's an ongoing project and more to do.
3: Well, the Zissner writes, one of the recruitment considerations stated in the introduction was pay consideration in order to remain competitive with the civilian workforce. Yet one of the problems frequently cited about military service is the need for government assistance programs, such as food stamps, which make pay considerations sound like how little pay can the military get away with? In which case, why take the risk to life and limb when you can financially struggle economically with far less danger? Roberto, you've reported on some efforts to to try to push back, especially if there are groups or schools who feel like the recruiters may be specifically targeting, dangling, I think to use your word, things that might not be real and so on. What have some of those resistance efforts been?
6: So many of the resistance efforts, honestly, at the end of the day, is these kind of recruitment orgs, they just want students and parents to be informed about their rights. And to have the full picture when it comes to enlistment, because to speak to one of the callers' um, experiences, you know, the truth, you know, benefits, particularly the college benefits for military personnel, it's not guaranteed. And it really depends on the circumstances around one's discharge from the military. You have to get a full honorable discharge in order to access those benefits. And if you get a general discharge or even a medical discharge, uh, you'll lose those benefits. And that is something that that is a detail that recruiters will often gloss over or omit completely when speaking to these uh, potential recruits,
3: so they're trying to fill in any gaps and give people the whole picture. Beth, I remember at the top of the show you were talking a little bit about resource management for recruiters. You've also talked about um, in presentations that you have given about about management of the recruitment force being more efficient and more effective. Are there concerns about recruiters either going to great lengths, maybe not telling the truth to be able to meet quotas or numbers? Is that a concern that has at least been cited?
4: Yeah, yeah. actually about a decade ago, I did a study on what was called recruiter irregularity. So, you know, recruiters who were doing things that uh, they shouldn't have been doing, so it's certainly a concern, but it's uh, you know, not it, things happen, and what we found is they uh, while they happen, it's not any, by any means the majority of recruiters in terms of um you know, incentives, what the research shows is that incentives for recruiters matter, that they are more productive when they have those quotas and when they get uh, awards associated with how many recruits they get it makes them more productive it makes their station more productive and it makes other resources like marketing more productive because the recruiters are out there sort of you know like ge- you know generating enlistments out of people who took an interest in um it from from the advertising so management of recruiters is extremely important it's not just the incentives it's how they are selected how they are trained how they're deployed across the country how they're managed and importantly to the point of misbehavior you know oversight to make sure those things are not happening and that recruiters who are not doing what they should be doing are weeded out and um you know managed appropriately
3: well let me go next to caller jesus and Hemet. jesus thanks for being with us you're on
5: Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I, enlisted, I enlisted in the Air Force at the age of 19. I just graduated from high school, barely graduated from high school. So just in a, in a, in a summary form, I was born in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, my family immigrated to San Diego early on. And I was doing the wrong thing, hanging out with gangs. Our house was involved in a drive-by shooting. We ended up moving back to Mexico. Anyhow, mm. when I went to... When I went to, uh, uh, I focused on graduating from high school and getting myself together, I had to quit my job. So I did that, graduated in the summer, but unfortunately, when I re- re- tried to reclaim the job, it was no longer available. So I didn't know what to do. My dad says, why don't you join the military? Go see the world, do something different. And so I did, and I joined the Air Force as a permanent resident and found it to be an amazing experience. Twenty-three years later, I even huh. was able to commission. They paid for my, all my education. Uh, we live in wonderful places like Japan and Germany, and so I and I and I acquired my citizenship in in the time frame required to do so, which was within three years. And yes, the process was expedited. Now, uh, in terms of what a young person can really achieve in that time frame is experience, diversity. Obviously, there were going to be some, uh, some challenges, which is, which is expected, but, but nothing that's out of the ordinary. And I really think it, it, it broadens uh, the horizon for one. Now, the only thing I'm going to add here is that I don't believe the recruiting practices, at least in the Air Force, are very fair. And mean, meaning there are certain demographic areas uh, that will only entertain certain career fields. And I'll give you an example. Say in Myrtle Valley, the Air Force recruiter there is only searching for vehicle mechanics or uh, supply personnel, but at no point are they entertaining air traffic controllers or safety managers or or higher-tier jobs. And, Mm -hmm. And that's a big turnoff because I feel that they should open up the field to all career fields in all demographic areas. I've had to basically lobby for... Uh, young people in Wilmington, California, Moreno Valley, and, and, and oh, by the way, this young man who wanted to be an air traffic controller he was 30 years of age was unable to do so because the Air Force, I think, unfairly uh, disqualified him. Well, he is now an air traffic controller in the United States Navy. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot to be said about the recruiting practices. I think they need to be revamped. I also agree with some of the things that Roberto said earlier um, you know, we need to be better, better informed. We need to be able to better inform our youth in terms of what the military is about. But also highlight the positive aspects. I mean, for me, it was a life change. And I'd never be where I am now. I teach Air Force Junior ROTC. I'm proud of that. I help my students overcome a lot of inner city challenges, like the ones I did, single-parent households. And a lot more of the drama than that. But to me, the military is a viable option. Absolutely.
3: Well, Jesus, I really appreciate you sharing all those nuances, especially as someone who has had direct experience with this. So, so thanks so much for calling in.
5: Thank you, man. I appreciate this opportunity. Have a blessed day.
3: You too. Um, it is. I, I, are there issues with with people feeling tracked in terms of the types of things that they that they go into to Beth or what they're recruited for? Um,
4: So the jobs, uh, the availability jobs are driven by training seat openings. And so you can, you know, if you're not enlisting at a certain time, there might not be seats available in certain occupations. The services differ. The Air Force tends to recruit for broad areas as opposed to tracking for a specific occupation, the army tends to track for specific occupations. So I wouldn't say, you know, it's an intersection between your qualifications and there's a lot of tests and qualification criteria and what's available in terms of training seats. And it, there's like, they have like reservation systems that try to marry up the, the individual applicant with it. So it mm. can look like they're tracked, but actually it's a pretty complex process.
3: Well, Roberto, I I know you grew up in San Diego, and San Diego has a very high proportion of active-duty military personnel bases and so on. We've been talking about just sort of this decline in the military, and one of the things that I've been wondering about is if this is, is a blip or a longer-term issue that really is of concern and needs to be addressed. But I'm just wor- wondering if in San Diego, in in a place like that, if you have seen either a decline in interest among your peers in going into the military, or if you've, if it feels like it's as strong as ever.
6: Living in San Diego, my entire life, it is very much without, it goes out saying it's a military town. There's over um, 111,000 active duty military personnel stationed in the city. And it has the nation's largest concentration of military personnel in the entire country. Mm. Um, from, from my experience, the military presence is ubiquitous, so the the decline nationwide isn't really felt um, necessarily here in the city. To speak to um, Jesus' experience, though, um, calling in, one thing that I have noticed in my reporting is that the recruitment amongst different branches is not necessarily proportional, especially given the... Uh, neighborhoods that they recruit from Hmm. I spoke with uh, Marco Amaral who was a special education teacher and the uh, board president of the South Bay Union school district in Chula Vista and he and the students that I spoke with for my reporting that they said that they would see the marines on campus uh, multiple times a month where on the other hand I believe they said that the uh, air force came to their school uh, one time throughout the entire year and a lot of times people associate the Air Force with more technical, um, technologically advanced positions where the, um, the Marines are on the front line of, you know, any kind of combat um, situation. And the students are very, very much aware of that, you know. And the, again, these are Generation Z students who are like the least likely to enlist or to have a critical view of military service.
3: Well, Roberto, I appreciate you giving us a window into your reporting, and thanks so much for coming on.
6: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
3: Roberta Camacho, a freelance reporter who has reported on military recruitment for prison and focuses on race, social justice, and equity. This happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So, Sean writes, I served in the Army as a demolition specialist. I feel that our country could gain a huge opportunity to create a more cohesive national identity if we had a year or two of mandatory service. This should not be limited to the military, but include things like Habitat for Humanity, AmeriCorps, service and hospice care, and many other useful services that we need. This would act as a wonderful rite of passage for young Americans. Beth, your thoughts on this? I've also heard of mandatory service actually being used as a way to try to deal with the equity issues that Roberto, for example, brought up. But what are your thoughts on this particular listener's comment?
4: So, you know, especially when recruiting is difficult, this idea of, um, you know, national service comes up, and there are many people who will advocate for it and talk about the advantages. But it. You know, ultimately comes down to our concept of a volunteer force versus, if you will, it's a type of mandatory service is a kind of conscription. Yeah. And there might be social benefits associated with that. But from a standpoint of sort of cost effectiveness in terms of the productivity of people, it, it, uh, the cost of it, it, it's, it it doesn't really make sense in general, although there
3: are circumstances where it, it could you mean could we see a draft again? You think? And...
4: I I don't think there's a appetite among policymakers or among the American public for that. I think that the circumstances are are kind of what you might see, like in Israel, where you have a small country, dangerous neighborhood, and so there's a lot of support for it. That that's just not the case here.
3: Let me go to Dory in Santa Rosa. Dory, you're on.
4: Hi. Um... I think that a big reason why people aren't enlisting as a mom of kids right out of who are just out of high school
5: and from a family that historically at least all the men have served um, at least once in the military um, is because we're so much more educated about the emotional impacts and generational
4: trauma. And I not only wouldn't want Mm. my son to go through
5: anything traumatic, But also, he wants to be a dad someday. And my family has just really directly experienced the problems in the family that it can create when someone's mental health is compromised.
3: Yeah, Dory, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And it it underscores a point we were bringing up earlier about more understanding of the mental health impacts, trauma, and so on. So appreciate your call. Let me see if I can squeeze Henry in, who's a recruiter um, in San Francisco in. Hi, Henry.
8: Hi. Uh, actually, I'm in Arinda, but I, I used oh, I, got, I was a submarine officer. I went to the Naval Academy from high school from a predominantly Hispanic school, one of the first guys to ever go there. But I ended in in submarines, and then I ended up in recruiting, first in L.A., recruiting district in L.A., and then ran the region, which was the 17 Western states. I think this is a complex subject, and one of the yes. things I, I guess that caught my uh, ear was Roberto said that you don't get educational benefits; you get a general discharge. That's not true. You can go on the VA website and see that's true. So, a one hour is a very short period of time to talk about a complex subject, and every service has different needs,
2: yes. and they're
8: not targeted. Re- they're not targeted regionally; they're targeted nationally. He didn't. You know, again, unless you have personal experience and you're not talking to anybody in recruiting currently, you don't get the full picture. Personally, as a first-generation American, I think the military benefited me greatly. And I have a lot of people that were enlisted under me that also you know, thanked me for their opportunity to serve. So it's not Mm -hmm. for everybody. Many people aren't qualified, mainly physically, because we're such a country that's so out of shape – but it is, it is a difficult decision, but it does have lots of
2: benefits.
3: Well, Henry, I appreciate your point and also appreciate you helping us scratch the surface. And also, I appreciate that from you as well, Beth. Thank you so much for coming on. Beth Thank Asch, you for having me. Beth Ash is Senior Economist at RAND. My thanks to Mark Nieto for producing today's segment. And my thanks as always to listeners for sharing their experiences and perspectives. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
1: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.